Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The U.S. bishops recently had their fall meeting, and on this episode, Bishop shares the highlights, including their discussion about the newly released McCarrick Report. Here, Bishop Rhodes offer his perspective on the complicated and disappointing series of events spanning decades that led to the former American Cardinal Theodore McCarrick being found canonically guilty of serial sexual abuse and misconduct. Bishop also talks about other items that were on their agenda, including the spiritual effects of the pandemic, their growing response to racism, and the formation of a new task force due to the election of Joe Biden, a working group in which Bishop Rhodes will be a member. Then the show wraps up with Bishop and Kyle talking about Blessed Miguel Pro, a priest who was executed in 1927 during the height of religious persecution in Mexico. Welcome to Truth and Cherry with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Happy almost Thanksgiving. Same to you, Kyle. Great to be with you on this day before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Do you think you'll have turkey this year? Yes. You know, I'm going to have mass at uh, St. Mary's in Fort Wayne. Uh-huh. And probably, you know, then the soup kitchen, probably have a little turkey there. But okay. then I'm going to to be with our cloistered nuns for Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, wow. So that will be fun with our poor sisters of St. Clair. Uh How often do they have guests? Well, they don't. Only the (laughs) bishop, really. I mean, they can have guests. They have a a grill, and they can have, uh, you know, sometimes they can have, like, family visits or whatever. They visit behind the grill. But Uh one of the um, blessings of being a bishop is a bishop is allowed to go into the cloister. Okay. So when I have mass for the sisters, I'll often uh, have breakfast with them inside the cloister. Uh So that's kind of a special privilege. I heard there's a a shortage on small turkeys this year because a lot of smaller Thanksgiving parties, people don't want these huge turkeys if it's just their family. Is that right? I didn't hear that. So are you getting a large one for your family, I don't know what we're going to do. Because you can always eat leftovers. You know, I love leftover turkey. That's that's true. Yep. <laughs> how, how do you do it in a sandwich or? Yeah, I just, mean, sometimes a sandwich or just just eat the meat. Sometimes I yeah. feel like we never do sandwiches on Thanksgiving Day. We just eat the meat, but then mm-hmm. leftovers. A lot of times we'll throw a Make piece sand. of bread on there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, do you have a prayer to start us off with today? Well, why don't I do the prayer that that is used at Mass on Thanksgiving Day? Okay. The collect okay. in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father all-powerful, your gifts of love are countless, and your goodness infinite. As we come before you on Thanksgiving Day with gratitude for your kindness, open our hearts to have concern for every man, woman, and child so that we may share your gifts in loving service. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you, Bishop. You're also, welcome. before we get too much into the show, I want to thank Kingdom Builders. Another Kingdom Builders member has sponsored a show in honor of the Kingdom Builders. And uh, always good to recognize them and 
give them a little shout out at buildingthroughhim.com. If any women are interested in learning more about Kingdom Builders, they also have a Facebook page and some regular meetups. In today's episode, I have just a, a couple of topics that I think might kind of be big things to talk about. One is Blessed Miguel Pro, which we'll maybe talk about in the second half. But the other is the fall USCCB meeting, which was November 16th and 17th. Is this the first time it's ever been done virtually? Like Yes, this? first time. Yep. So how was that different, the dynamics of well, being Well, I really person? didn't care for it, to be honest. I've been in so many virtual meetings. Yeah. Um, but I really miss the camaraderie and mm-hmm. being together and you know, the liturgies together, the prayer together, the discussions. But given the situation right. of the pandemic, it worked. I thought they did it very efficiently. I think it worked out well. But I really miss the in-person meetings with the brother bishops. Yeah. What were some of the things on the schedule for the meeting? Well, we talked a lot about the ongoing pandemic and the challenges with the pandemic. We talked about the church's response to racism, Mm -hmm. and we talked about the McCarrick report. So I would say, I mean, there were other things too, but I would say those were the the three major themes. Mm -hmm. And then a kind of a announcement at the end regarding the our relationship with 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 Joe Biden our newly elected right. you know president president elect and I'll talk a little bit about that as well okay was there any voting new positions or anything like that there was a vote for the new general secretary because monsignor Brian Bransfield uh, who has served for many years is uh, will go back to his home archdiocese of Philadelphia he did a great job and he he's been replaced by the one who was the associate general secretary, Monsignor Jeffrey Burrill, a priest of the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. So that was a significant election. There were some other committee uh, elections. For example, Cardinal Dolan was elected chair of the Bishop's Committee for Religious Liberty, which is okay. a committee that I serve on. There were Uh, several new members of the board of directors of Catholic Relief Services. Mm -hmm. I end my two-year, two terms, not two years, Uh two terms serving on the board of directors of Catholic Relief Services, so I'll miss that. And how long was each term? I think it was three years, so I've been serving for six. Okay. And then I presently chair the Committee on Doctrine, Mm -hmm. and so they voted for the new chair of Committee on Doctrine, and he would only take office a year from now. So he's chair-elect for a year. Okay. So my term goes another year. You can only be elected for one term uh-huh. in any of these major committees. And that's been a lot of work, the Committee on Doctrine. Yeah. So my successor will be Bishop Daniel Flores of Brownsville, Texas. Okay. Uh, really good choice. He's He presently serves on the Committee on Doctrine, so I've gotten to know him. He's very good theologian, very bright bishop. So I think he'll do well. Great. Well, which topic would you like to maybe share with us first? Well, you know, it, it, one of the first things that uh, at the meeting was an opening address by Archbishop Gomez, mm-hmm. Jose Gomez, the Archbishop of Los Angeles. And the president he re- of the USCCB. And he's president of the USCCB. And uh, so he began by remembering the children and adults within the church who are victim survivors of clergy sexual abuse. Mm. And, you know, this was in light of the McCarrick report from the Vatican. And he expressed deep sorrow and offered prayers that the victims would find healing Mm -hmm. and hope. Uh, 
so he kind of set the tone with that. We, we had a uh, lengthy discussion about that as well, that topic during the meeting. The Archbishop also pointed to the ongoing suffering caused by the coronavirus pandemic, especially, you know, many who've fallen sick or, or died, and then the church's ministry during this time, the economic turmoil in, in the lives of many people and in the church, and uh, how the church can help people to navigate this enormous challenge. Mm-hmm. The Apostolic Nuncio, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, also gave a speech about the pandemic, he, he, or gave a speech including talking about the pandemic, um, and talked about our mission to help bring healing, to try to bring hope into people's lives. So then we had probably an hour-long conversation. Several bishops spoke about how they've been dealing in their dioceses with the pandemic, mm-hmm. things that we've done, the live stream masses, efforts to keep in touch with parishioners, especially elderly, how to help people who are struggling with some of the basic necessities like food, and then the spiritual lessons, you know, the desire for the Holy Eucharist mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So. It was a good opportunity to to share, and then after those talks and that discussion, we approved a budget for the USCCB for the next year, which takes into account the economic impact of the pandemic. So there had to be some trimming of the budget. For example, a pay freeze and travel restrictions for all the employees of the USCCB, kind of like what we did here in the diocese. We had to sure. do a pay freeze. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... Uh, So there was no increase in assessment to diocese being proposed for the next year uh, because of, you know, the economic challenges. The other uh, important item that we talked about was the issue of racism in light of the protests over the summer after the killing of George Floyd. So we talked about racial inequality. And we, you know, we have a four-year strategic plan the USCCB, where we have our priorities as bishops, as a body of bishops. Mm -hmm. So we had already adopted the plan for the next four years. It begins in January. But we added the whole issue of of racism to our uh, strategic plan. I think that was important. Mm -hmm. And we approved the renewal of the Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism for three more years. That committee has done an awesome job. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's been renewed. And then we had some opportunity to discuss efforts to address racism in our own dioceses. You know, we have that pastoral letter of the U.S. bishops two years ago on racism. When we when we uh, approved that pastoral letter, we had no idea how we would how things would develop that mm-hmm. we would have this reckoning that uh, our country experienced this past summer. So, in many ways, the document was was very timely. And I I certainly encourage our listeners to read that pastoral letter of the U.S. bishops on racism that was was issued in 2018. I think we've talked about it here on the show. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention was kind of a surprise. At the end of the meeting, Archbishop Gomez talked about how this is a unique moment in the history of our country with the election of our second Catholic president. And Archbishop Gomez talked about President-elect Biden's commitments that we favor, Mm -hmm. things like comprehensive immigration reform, aid to refugees, 
racial justice, our teachings on, on uh, protecting the environment and on mm -hmm. capital punishment. And that these are important policies, uh, priorities for us. But at the same time, it creates problems because we have now a Catholic president who supports policies that go against some of the fundamental values of our faith. Mm -hmm. And to have a Catholic in the office who will do that, for example, the Hyde Amendment might get repealed. And he, you know, the Hyde Amendment prevents the use of federal funds to be used for abortions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, President-elect Biden is for is now for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. He never was until the Democratic Party debates this past summer. So that was very troubling, very disappointing. Also, he said about codifying Roe v. Wade into law, mm -hmm. that is deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, of course, Roe v. Wade, as everyone knows, is the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion. So... The archbishop said it creates confusion when we have politicians who profess the Catholic faith, but then support these policies that go against what the church teaches, mm -hmm. especially when it's such a fundamental moral issue. So the archbishop, Archbishop Gomez, announced that he's forming a working group led by Archbishop Vigneron, who's the Archbishop of Detroit. He's also the vice president of the USCCB, mm -hmm. that... The Archbishop is asking this, this task force, this working group, to address these issues surrounding the election of a Catholic president and policies that may come about that would be in conflict with our Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. So what I found surprising is that the working group, he, he asked me to be part of the working group. So, okay. And that's because I'm chair of the Committee on Doctrine. So mm -hmm. I don't know when our first... First meeting will be, but that'll certainly be a, uh, a challenging task. So would that be mostly releasing documents and statements, or would there be an outreach to try to open a discussion with President-elect Biden and his staff and, you know, hopefully maybe meet with him and talk about some of these issues? Well, definitely the latter. Okay. I mean, that, that dialogue is going to be really right. important. I'm, and, um, you know, President-elect Biden himself and his staff, mm -hmm. uh, it's really important. And we need to talk to him about these issues and especially the fact of his being Catholic. Right. And um, so, but in addition to that, you know, we'll have to see how it develops. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm sure we, we always, no matter who the president is, the bishops have been vocal on mm -hmm. moral issues, right? You know whether you know it was President Obama or President Trump. We try to influence according to our Catholic teachings. We try to not become you know political in a partisan sense, but really standing up for the values of our faith, whether it be for the life and dignity of the human person, including unborn children. We've been very vocal against abortion, against capital punishment, mm -hmm. against euthanasia, but also our, our care for immigrants and, and for uh, the poor and uh, refugees, all of those things. So sometimes we will praise or sometimes we'll criticize public policies. Uh, or laws that are passed by Congress, mm -hmm. or executive decisions and actions by the president. So I'm sure that will continue. I mean, that's just 
part of what the USCCB does, just as our Indiana Catholic Conference on the state level does the same thing, where mm-hmm. we will examine certain bills and either support them, oppose them. I mean, only those that really we would have an interest in specifically. Mm-hmm. So that would continue. But I think the the main concern here, as far as this working group that Archbishop Gomez is tasking, is is the is the concern about people getting confused about what the church teaches when they have a Catholic president who's who's very obvious and speaks proudly of being Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, of practicing his faith, and yet holds some positions that are very seriously uh, contrary to our faith. Is this specifically with the president, or would this also address other politicians, senators, governors, things like that? Yeah, and that's really up. I would say that's handled more by their own local bishops. Okay, you know, for example, if if we had a U.S. senator or congressman here in our own diocese and who was Catholic, for example, and yet was taking positions very much against. Catholic teaching, it would be up to me as bishop to meet with him and and talk to him about those things. Okay. But now we have someone on a national level. Okay, mm-hmm. now he would have his own bishop, the Bishop of Wilmington, Delaware, but you know he'll be living at the White House, so he'll be within the jurisdiction of the Archbishop of Washington. But yet, as president, he's president of the whole United States. So right. I think that is a little different. Got it. Well, another issue you mentioned, and it was something that I think anticipated for several years now, was the McCarrick Report, which was released shortly before your meeting. Did you have a chance to read over that at all? I did. I mean, it was long. <laughs> about an hour before it, it was released, the bishops received a uh, the executive summary. So I was oh, okay. able to read the executive summary that morning when it was released, but then Afterwards, I was able to read the whole report. Now, it's 449 pages, yeah. so it took me a few days to really to read it and still to digest it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was pretty incredible, the level of detail. Mm-hmm. I mean, 449 pages. It was very, very thorough. I mean, it involved information that was in the files, not only of the Holy See, but also in the dioceses that were involved and Mm -hmm. in the nuncio's office in Washington. So they had to comb through a huge amount of documentation, letters and emails and memos and all of that. So it's, it's kind of you know, to see that level of transparency, I was very happy about that. I mean, I, don't, I think this is unprecedented. I don't know that any, uh, the church has ever released something like this. Right. And yet, reading it, it's it's a bit complex as you try to figure out who knew what and mm-hmm. when and how McCarrick rose through the ranks to read about the corruption of this man and how he kind of used his his position to get to rise up in the hierarchy of the church. It was, you know, very, very disturbing to read. Um, Mm. At the same time, the mistakes that were made and how it was handled was also very disturbing. I couldn't help thinking as I was reading it how differently it would be handled today. Thanks be to God. It's good for the listeners to know, I mean, there was no indication, no reports of McCarrick ever abusing a minor until the year 2017, so after it was way after his retirement. And at that point, 
you know, the church's policies worked. I mean, he was removed. There was an investigation. It was very well done, and it, it resulted in Pope Francis not only requesting his McCarrick's uh, resignation from the College of Cardinals, but eventually he was dismissed from the priesthood, mm-hmm. from the clerical state. So, so I'd say that worked well. But the problem was the many years where he had been engaged in misconduct, sexual misconduct with adults, mm-hmm. young men, seminarians, those under his authority. And, you know, really, this goes back to the 1980s. Uh, and then what the report reveals is how the bishops in those dioceses, as they receive some reports, how they handled it. Because when he was made a bishop, he was named Auxiliary Bishop of New York. At that point, there were no rumors or any reports of any misconduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was Auxiliary Bishop of New York, and then he became Bishop of Metuchen. He became the founding bishop of the Diocese of Metuchen, New Jersey. And it was then, I think, that there were some anonymous reports. And, of course, you know, you think about anonymous reports are very difficult to investigate. You don't have a name. You don't have an address. You know, how do you address them? But, mm-hmm. but did raise some suspicions because as Bishop of Metuchen, he, well, he had befriended families in New York even before he went to Metuchen where he, he had uh, some strange behavior with young men. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but again, there was nothing other than anonymous kinds of reports. But, but then when he was Bishop of Metuchen, he would take some of the seminarians or young priests to his beach house in New Jersey, Seagirt, New Jersey, or to some fishing vacation somewhere. And uh, so there were rumors about that, that he would, and I'm not sure when uh, the first actual report, I'd have to look back, but some point someone did come forward and, and uh, reveal that he would often have sleep have one of the uh, seminarians or one of his visitors from New York, young men, adults, sleep in the same bed with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were rumors then started to swirl about that. And then when the Bishop of Metuchen, I think he was probably the first one, who was informed about this, and then I think when someone actually, a priest came, a young priest came forward, he wasn't believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to get into all the details of the report, but what seemed, and, and some of these anonymous letters were sent to a lot of bishops, mm-hmm. but they didn't, you know, they just didn't believe him, I guess. I think the main problem, then he was advanced and became Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey. And again, these rumors continued. I think the big, biggest flaw was there was no thorough investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some of these disturbing reports that came, and either those making a report were not believed, or there were others who said, "Well, he did this, but there were no, there was no touching, there was no sexual involvement." But it was certainly strange and inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think, you know, in hindsight, I'd say, why didn't they do an investigation? Right. You know, I would have thought that the seminarians at that seminary, Seton Hall in New- Newark, where the seminarians from Metuchen and Newark attended, like, like why weren't they interviewed? And mm-hmm. why wasn't there some kind of, there was this deference, I think, to the archbishop. There was this, I don't know. It was just, uh, I think that was the, we know that couldn't, happen today because of the procedures that we have in place mm-hmm. but but that that happened you know i i kind of try to think well what were those bishops thinking because there was also the bishop of trenton and the bishop of camden who uh had even witnessed at some event mccarrick touching or putting his hand on the inner thigh of a seminarian well mm-hmm. You know, and they never reported that to the Holy See. So I think there was, I don't know if it was just turning a blind eye or kind of like refusing to believe that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to, to fathom. Um, as time went on then, when McCarrick was being considered for another promotion, either to Chicago or New York, and to Washington, he was passed over for promotion because Cardinal O'Connor of New York, he kind of comes out as a bit of a hero in this. Hmm. Cardinal John O'Connor knew about these rumors and had heard some of the reports, and and it left him with a big question mark that there might be something, you know, sexual going on. So he was very, very strong in advising the Vatican against McCarrick being promoted. So they listened to him. So McCarrick wasn't promoted until I think it was year 2000 when when he was appointed to Washington. Now, the first time he was considered for the Archdiocese of Washington, they decided no. Mm -hmm. But then they reversed the decision. Somehow McCarrick found out that O'Connor had written against his being promoted. And he wrote a letter to, to, to Pope John Paul II through his secretary, Archbishop Jeevitz, basically lying and saying that he's always been faithful in his priesthood, that he's never abused a minor or an adult, that he's been totally chaste and all this. And of course, he had a big, very good reputation. John Paul knew him. And believed McCarrick because mm-hmm. he swore that he didn't do anything wrong. So that's how he got appointed Archbishop of Washington. Pope John Paul was really deceived. Again, I, I would have thought that at that point, the, and of course the, pap- the apostolic nuncios throughout this time were looking into all this. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, those bishops, those three bishops who knew something, the Bishop of Metuchen, the Bishop of Trenton, the Bishop of... Camden, they didn't reveal everything they knew to the Vatican, especially that incident that I mentioned where two of them, two or three of them actually saw him touch the inner thigh of a seminarian and they had heard the rumors and, and, uh, you know, so I don't know what it was. Was it the clericalism of the culture? Mm -hmm. They were perhaps, you know, they themselves were unsure there had been a young priest who came forward and actually said that, you know, McCarrick had 
had touched him sexually, etc. But they didn't believe him. And the psychologist who did the study, he he even went to the Vatican to tell them about it, hmm. and said that he thinks this this priest was uh, was telling the truth. The thing is, that priest who was telling the truth had himself engaged in misconduct with two minors. So I think his credibility was, you know, the bishops just didn't, I guess they didn't believe him or weren't sure that what he was saying was true. So it's very complex. Mm -hmm. You read through all this, try to think of what was in their mind. But I think they gave, definitely, they sh there should have been an, a, a thorough investigation. I mean, when you think about it, why not investigate by, by interviewing all those seminarians for Metuchen and Newark? This could have stopped, you know? So that I find very, very disappointing. And um, so he became the Archbishop of Washington. He became a cardinal. And, you know, with these rumors and also with a couple who had actually accused him but weren't believed and then um it wasn't until new york archdiocese in 2017 received the uh accusation by a minor and cardinal dolan did everything right he set up the investigation with the Archdiocesan Review Board. They found the allegation to be credible. Then another minor, someone who had been a minor, came forward, and that led to him eventually being defrocked. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, do you have any thoughts? Just I, I think one thing is McCarrick was able to deceive so many people, right. and for some reason there wasn't a uh, – it just – wasn't investigated as it should have been. Besides the transparency, does it seem like the report issues an apology? Is it uh, does it does it point out some of the flaws in the system so it's avoided in the future? Is there is there any other benefit other than the transparency aspect of it? Yeah, it doesn't do really an evaluation of the process. It's just a report, okay. and it leaves that to others who read the report. To, to kind of evaluate how things could be done better, et cetera. But I think it was very forthright. Um, the purpose of the report, I think, was to show how the Holy See, what they knew, mm -hmm. and how decisions were made related to McCarrick's appointments. So it's a very factual, very objective report. Um, would you say it's more of a preliminary report and that there would be, there should be follow-ups to this as people analyze the report? Yes, I would agree. And I would say that the actions that Pope Francis took a couple years ago, especially the document Vos Estis Lux Mundi, which now there's a reporting system in, if there, for people to report if there's any abuse or misconduct by a bishop, mm -hmm. they can go. There's a hotline that you wouldn't report that to the bishop. And right, he just buries right. it. Yeah. yeah, and there's so now there's procedures. Mm -hmm. Back then there wasn't really a procedure. Right. So some just kept quiet about it. Some wrote anonymous letters, and the the few who did come forward basically weren't believed, or you know there were only a few who actually. 
I, I forget, maybe two or three, who actually said there was sexual kinds of touching, etc. But there were many who, who knew that he slept with seminarians, mm. you know, and that right. just, like, why wouldn't that have been a huge red flag, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Yeah. So then bringing this up at the UC, USCCB meeting, what was the discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically was the great importance of us following the norms mm -hmm. that we have that are there in Vos Estes. And that if ever a bishop hears such a report, it can't be swept under the carpet. It can't be just dismissed as, well, this person just isn't telling the truth. You know, there's no like giving the bishop or the one accused the benefit of the doubt. No, there has to be examination. There has to be investigation of these kinds of complaints. And we do have that process is all there. So um, that's a very serious duty. Like we do if there's an accusation against a priest. I mean, we have an investigator. We have the Dawson Review Board. So there's a thorough investigation. And it's, it's something that then, you know, all that has to be done. We just don't dismiss reports. If it is a false allegation, then, or an allegation is not credible, and that's the finding, that's fine. But there needs to be a very careful and thorough investigation before arriving at any kind of a conclusion. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else from the meeting that you wanted to highlight? Um, I would say, um, as I said, I kind of missed having the in-person, but I thought, given the circumstances, I thought it was a good meeting. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, just a reminder, if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We'll talk about Blessed Miguel Pro, a Mexican priest who was executed coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values, why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who is going to answer a question that a listener submitted. And then I want to talk a little bit about Miguel Pro, blessed Miguel Pro, if you're willing, and if we have time. But the question we got was, with the holiday season upon us, people are discerning the best way to celebrate with family during COVID. Some say the most responsible thing to do is stay at home and not see family and friends in person. Others think that could be more harmful to our mental and spiritual well-being. It seems like people are judging others for not being in agreement with their position. Is there any advice you can give? Yeah, I think everyone has to look at their own particular situation. I think in, in families getting together, I mean, obviously those who live in the same household, they're already together. Right. But as far as extended family or grandparents, I think one has to be careful that if there is, you know, take proper precautions, especially if there's, uh, you know, someone, grandparents or elderly or people who are very vulnerable, you want to protect them. So some people have chosen that they're going to just bring them a meal, uh, mm -hmm. but not have them at the dinner table 
or they maintain some distance mm -hmm. within the same house. You know, there's no, I don't know. I, I think you just take proper precautions. I don't know that you, uh, I, I'd leave it to everyone's uh, discernment of that. I, I don't have the right or wrong answer. I know sometimes when I've gotten uh, to be at, at a dinner, for example, I had a baptism about a week ago, and, and uh, we wore masks uh, at the baptism and also at the reception afterwards. And then we pretty much sat distanced because you take off the mask to eat. Mm -hmm. Now, we weren't of the same family. I mean, some of those who were part of the family, they could be together. But those of us like myself who weren't part of the family, we were at other tables in the same room. Yeah. And uh, we just, you know, was it perfect? No, but I think it was took proper precautions. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look at each individual situation. Okay. Well, on November 23rd, we celebrated the feast day of Blessed Miguel Pro. And I don't think we've talked about him on the show before, but has a great story. People might be familiar with his, his like, I guess, dying yeah. phrase that he is well known for. Yeah. You know, I was on a pilgrimage when I was still Bishop of Harrisburg to to Mexico, to our, the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I, I've always had devotion to Blessed Miguel Pro, Father Pro. He was a Jesuit. And it was really neat that during that pilgrimage, I was able to celebrate Mass for our group in Holy Family Church in, in downtown Mexico City, where, where he's, his remains are there in, 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 a, in a, like a little coffin. Uh -huh. But anyhow, he was, um, growing up, he was kind of a practical joker. He was, uh, you know, really fun kind of guy, but in, intensely spiritual too, but this great sense of humor. Anyhow, he became, a, uh, entered the Jesuits, the novitiate. But at that time, I think it was around 1914, while he was studying, there was a lot of, of uh, persecution of the church that had begun by the government a lot of anti-Catholicism in Mexico. So he had to leave, he had to flee, went to California and then Nicaragua. Eventually he was ordained a priest in Belgium where he had done his theological studies. And through that time, the situation of the church in Mexico had gotten worse. You know, Catholic churches were closed, bishops and, and, and priests and religious were rounded up and deported. Some of them imprisoned if they tried to you know, in certain areas, depending on which area of Mexico, but but in any event, he um, he went back. He went back, even though this persecution of the church was going on. When he arrived back, the president of Mexico, and this was in 1926, his name was Plutarco Calles, and Calles vigorously enforced these anti-Catholic provisions of the 1917 Constitution, and. He, for example, priests were not allowed anymore to wear clerical garb. They had to, they couldn't criticize the government or they'd be imprisoned. And in certain areas, for example, the churches were actually closed, like I said, and priests could not even celebrate the sacraments. But some went into hiding and kind of served the people clandestinely underground. Mm -hmm. So that's what uh, Father Pro did. He came back and he kind of became part of this underground church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they kind of, the government found out about him and there was a warrant for his arrest, but they couldn't really prove it. So they had to let him go. Eventually there was a failed assassination attempt against the 
president of Mexico, former president of Mexico, and they use that as a pretext for uh, saying that Father Pro was involved in it along with his brothers. So they were arrested, uh, even though someone else com- confessed to mm. it and said that the, the Pro brothers weren't involved. They still kept Father Pro, Father Miguel Pro and his brothers. They didn't even have a trial. And they were ordered to be, the president, Calles, ordered that they be executed, or ordered that Father Miguel Pro be executed. So it's interesting, the president had the execution photographed. He thought this would be a warning, because it would be in newspapers across the country, and thought that, well, people would be frightened, because by this time, there was a movement of what they call the Cristeros, these rebels, who were fighting against the troops of Calles. You know, the Cristeros, um, actually what happened by publicizing the, the assassination or the murder of, uh, of Miguel Pro uh, in papers across the country, it actually elicited not support for Calles. It didn't make people fearful. It actually galvanized the opposition, including the Cristeros movement. What happened was Father Pro, blessed Miguel Pro, went to a courtyard to face the firing squad. He uh, blessed the soldiers. He knelt down, prayed. He faced them. He wouldn't wear a blindfold. They Hmm. were going to put a blindfold on him. He said, no, he wanted to look. He held the crucifix in one hand, a rosary in the other. He held his arms out in imitation of Jesus on the cross, and he shouted out, Viva Cristo Rey. Before he said that, he said, may God have mercy on you. May God bless you. Lord, you know that I'm innocent. With all my heart, I forgive my enemies. And then, as I said, he shouted out, really was the battle cry of the Cristeros, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. Mm-hmm. So he fell, and they fire. Uh, one of the soldiers came over and make sure he was dead, just shot him at point-blank range. About 40,000 came out for the funeral procession of mm-hmm. Father Pro. Another 20,000 were at the cemetery. His fa- there was no priest allowed to be there, so his own father said the final words and prayers. And this kind of galvanized the Cristeros. He, uh, father Pro was, was beatified by Pope John Paul II in 1988. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention, he secretly administered the sacraments during that time before he was arrested. And he would go and take different disguises um, he would disguise himself as a mechanic or whatever, and he'd be, you know, celebrating the Eucharist for people or bringing the Eucharist, hearing confessions, anointing the sick. So he was very, very clever um, during those couple of years that he was able to exercise his priestly ministry before he was arrested and killed. There's two things I was thinking of. One is the idea of they thought the picture of him dying would be something to diminish the church, but instead it strengthened the church. And there's that quote that the seed of the martyrs is the... The blood of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Seed of Christians. Yep. Yeah. That's Tertullian. And then uh, the second thing is we just had, we just celebrated Christ the King Sunday. And then we have... Blessed Miguel Pro, who said, long live Christ the King. I don't know if that's a coincidence that they're right around the same time. I suppose that would vary from year to year on when Advent falls and all that. But Yeah. Well, it was on uh, November 23rd that he was martyred. Uh-huh. Um, and that probably, was that before 
the Feast of Christ the King was established? Well, it was in 1927 that Father Pro was killed, and I'm trying to think. It was Pope Pius XI. Uh, <laughs> let me stuff? think. That would have been. I'm sorry. Awesome. I think it it was around that time. Uh, you know, I, I'd have to look back. I, it's it would be close to when the Feast of Christ the King started. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Just a reminder, send your questions over the Holy Cross College text line. Just text 260-436-9598. And before we go, Bishop, could we have your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. Now and forever. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Search for Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on your favorite podcast app to listen anytime. Hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss a new episode. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future show, a topic you'd like Bishop and Kyle to discuss, or if you have any feedback for us, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop and fill out the form. Next week, Bishop talks about Advent, a time to not only prepare for Christ's birth, but also his second coming. Then he answers listener-submitted questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.